When I walked in this morning and picked up the copy of the bulletin, I noticed that uh, uh, sermon is the same one last week, so if you can recall some of the things I've said, we'll, we'll just kind of talk it about and see if we remember. Actually, it reminds me of the, uh, the church that called a new pastor, and his, they called him because he was excellent in his preaching, and, and as he preached his first Sunday, everybody was just enamored with that first sermon. Next week, they were all looking forward to that another good sermon, uh, and they got the same sermon. And somebody said, something familiar about what he said. And the next, next Sunday, the third Sunday, he preached the same one again. <laughs> and the lead deacon and the church moderator, like Kim and Steve, went to the new pastor and said, uh, what's, what's with uh, the repeating of the sermon? We thought you were trained to give a new sermon every Sunday. And the new preacher said, well, when you do something about that one, I'll go to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this morning's message is on spiritual resist, resiliency in times of crisis. We sometimes, when we're we're drained in our our spirit and our faith, uh, we we wonder what is uh, going on. We feel like, uh, where's God? tell this story I, I ran across uh, this week. A man was walking on a mountain road when he came upon an Indian lying in the middle of the road with his ear to the ground. The Indian was muttering broken English. If you can picture this, he's, he's laying there, he's listening uh, to the ground. It's a truck, it's a Chevy truck. Chevy pickup truck, large tires. Man driving, German Shepherd in the front seat. Loaded with firewood, California license plates, uniform Brava Alpha 123. Man was said to the Indian, You can tell all of that just by listening to the ground? The Indian said, No, that truck ran over me 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Life's a lot like that. We do not always see what is coming, and when it does come, it runs right over us sometimes. However, in Romans chapter 8, which is the, the scripture we're looking at today. Verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How do we stay spiritually resilient during times of struggle in our Christian walk? Because many people will turn away and seek other ways of comfort or other ways of sensing the meaning and purpose behind the struggles other than what God might be doing at a given point in time. And the eighth chapter of Romans is the turning point in the book of Romans where Paul has outlined what Jesus has done and then claims what the benefits are of what Jesus has done for us and then begs us to present ourselves to God so that he might transform us into what he wants. And so this eighth chapter talks a little bit about the process of what, is God, what God is doing during times of struggle. To understand this passage, we need to understand the first part of the book of Romans, what Paul has written in the very first chapter, and that's the very nature of God and his righteousness 
and what he expects of us because he has revealed that to us. It says in the first chapter of, of Romans that what we know of God can be seen in creation. The way he has taken and presented and created the world, the earth around us, and how it works and how it sustains us. The very creation speaks of the goodness of God, the wonderfulness of God, the powerfulness of God. But even Adam and Eve in the garden walked away from that and turned their backs on what God had provided for them in the garden. And they entered into a lifetime of spiritual struggle because of their turning away from God. And then Paul says, well, if you don't see it in creation, then look at your hearts because in our conscience, in our hearts, we know what God is about. We know that he is there. We know that he is speaking. We know that he is leading. We know that God has provided certain things for us. And as we look at our life experiences, we know in our hearts that God loves us. And we know in our hearts that there are right things to do. And sometimes uh, we don't always see that, but we know in our hearts because, as C.S. Lewis says, the very fact that we have guilt tells us that there is a God that is moral and has a plan for us to live out the righteousness that he has blessed the world that is with what is in him and what he would like to see in us. But when our look at creation seems to fail us and when we look at our hearts and that seems to fail us, God has given us the scriptures. He has written in the scriptures what God is like. And even through the Ten Commandments, the first part of the Ten Commandments are about worshiping and loving God. And the second part of the Ten Commandments is about how we deal with other people. And that law is there. Jesus captured that law into just a simple statement. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But yet, we don't get it right. And because we don't get it right, sometimes we experience the struggles in life that neglecting what God is doing or not realizing what God is doing uh, brings on that, that spiritual lostness and despair that we might experience. And what Paul also says in this passage is that we are accountable for the laws that uh, even though we don't know might be written and don't see, we're still held accountable. There are some stupid laws in this country. <clears throat> now, I'm not talking about politics. Stupid laws, and even though some of them are stupid, we're still held accountable for following them. For instance, in Jasper, Alabama, it's illegal for a husband to beat his wife with a stick larger in diameter than his thumb. In Fairbanks, it's illegal to feed alcoholic beverages to a moose. In California, it's illegal to set a mousetrap without a hunting license. In San Francisco, only in San Francisco, it's illegal to wipe one's car with used underwear. Yeah, ooh. In Florida, if an elephant is left tied up to a parking meter, the parking fee has to be paid just as it would be for a vehicle. 
in Georgia. Donkeys may not be kept in bathtubs. The reason for that, there was a flood, a dam break and a flood, and when the water came, this farmer had his donkey out in the barn, but he knew the donkey was going to uh, get washed away, so the only safe place he could find was in the bathtub, but then the, bath, the house was washed away, and the donkey was in the bathtub, and it was floating down the waterways, the spillways, and they couldn't rescue the donkey because it was in the bathtub, so they created a law. In the same state, no one may carry an ice cream cone in their back pocket on a Sunday. I'd be eating the ice cream cone, it wouldn't be in my back pocket. Idaho, you cannot fish on a camel's back. Michigan, under state law, dentists are officially classified as mechanics. Mississippi, I like this one. It's illegal to tease skunks. Ohio, it's illegal to get a fish drunk. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you do that? Texas, a recently passed anti-crime law requires criminals to give their victims 24 hours notice, either orally or in writing, and to explain the nature of the crime to be committed. Go figure. Only in Texas. These are laws that are on the books that are called stupid laws. Uh, you can find a plethora of them in the, uh, uh, on, on the internet. But people in those states are held accountable for breaking those laws, if the police even know that the laws are there. But we're accountable for knowing what God's laws are. And even if we don't know what God's laws are, we are accountable anyway. But the thing is, is that God has provided them to us. They're not laws that we don't know about because they've been written on our conscience. They've been written into creation. And God has given them to us in Scripture. We're accountable in, in that First chapter Romans, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Continuing on in that first chapter, it, Paul tells us that the great thinkers, those who were had turned to Christianity or those who thought they were godly. Although they knew God, verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their brutish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. In the middle of that pot passage, where Paul says that we are accountable, but yet we've ignored. He says something about the gospel, that he's not ashamed about what the gospel is. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, 
Just as it is written, this will live by faith. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. In order to fully understand the gospel and how that relates to our spiritual vitality when things are difficult, when we tend to struggle, we tend to turn our way, our hearts from what God has provided, we need to fully understand the gospel. And Paul lays that out through the next several chapters of the book of Romans. First he says we have all sinned. Sin is a fact. We're going to commit sin. He says in verse chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the very next verse, though, he says, And all are justified freely by his grace and the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Even though we have all sinned, we have all been justified by his grace that came through Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 23, Paul goes on to write about sin, and he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Each time Paul talks about sin, he tells us what God has done. We struggle because of some of those things that we have done, or we struggle because of the sins that others have committed against us, or because of the fact that there is sin in the world because of what Adam and Eve did, Adam and Eve did in the garden. Sin is a fact, but so is God's love and grace and redemption. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In the eighth chapter, Paul talks about suffering. We will all suffer. Suffering is a fact. Common issues such as illness, Pain, troubling children, aging, loss, anger, hurt, sorrow. Those things are all there, and we will all experience some of them at some point in time, and we will suffer. It is a fact. But some of us suffer spiritually to a degree that God really didn't intend for us to, and, and we suffer because we think that during those hard times, those difficult times, that God is either absent, God does not have the power to take care of what's going on in our lives. My guilt is so overwhelming that I don't think I could ever be forgiven. My own father felt that way. The last time I saw him, when he was, 10 years before he died, he told me, I guess I'm being punished for the sins I committed when I was younger. So I will never be happy. Some people really believe that. But yet God says that we can be spiritually resilient in our faith. Despair, hurt. We look at the non-Christians and we say, they've got it better than we do. Why? Spiritual suffering happens when what we believe to be true of God and what the Bible teaches us to be true of God when those two things that we believe and we know the Bible says come into conflict with what we experience or perceive to be true of God. Sometimes what we believe is true about God goes against what we may be experiencing. And so we blame God. We take it out on Him. Where were you? Why didn't you help? 
Why do they have it better than I do? Why can't they forgive me? Why can't I forgive myself? And Paul, when he's writing the next several chapters in Romans, tells about his inner conflict with this very fact that he struggles. He struggles spiritually. He struggles with the things that he knows to do and can't do, the things that he wants to do, the things that he doesn't want to do, but does anyway. There's an inner conflict. There's a war going on within ourselves between what is of God and what we want to take control of ourselves. Paul says in chapter just prior to our eighth chapter, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but the law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul asks the question, but he answers the question in the very next verse. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will rescue us when that internal war is going on, when we think that what we know of God and what we have believed of God and what we've learned in the scriptures about God is in conflict with what we're feeling and experiencing. Who will rescue us from that? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He writes in chapter 5 of Romans that there's a process that God is doing within us in our spiritual growth in our maturity. There's a maturing process that takes place. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we will boast in the hope of the glory of God. There's a process whereby God is developing the very hope that we have in Him. From the time that we become a Christian until the time that we are fully mature, even looking at the world through eternity's eyes, there's a hope that we've been brought into. And we have been justified through faith, and we still can maintain peace with God. In the next several verses, he says, not only that, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God is using those struggles that we experience in life, even those that are a result of our own sin or somebody's sin that is close to us. God is developing our character because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and hope is nothing that we need to be ashamed of. Why? Because God's love has been poured upon us. <coughs> to really get a handle on being spiritually resilient during times of crisis, we need to look at the second half of chapter 8 a little bit more closely and see what it tells us about God. 
What does this passage say about God? In the verses that we read earlier. Firstly, God has a purpose and is in control. Even though we think that God is out of control and lost control and that we don't think God is present or God is still managing the universe, God is still in control and has a purpose for what is going on. Verse 28, chapter 8. We already read it once, but I'm going to read it again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That verse tells us that God is still in control. And that verse tells us that there is still a purpose in our lives. I've entered this stage of life where we sometimes wonder what our purpose is. We've had a career. We're in that world that says we're retired, even though there's no word for retirement in the scriptures. And we still wonder now, what is our purpose? Why are we here? God still loves us, and we've been called according to his purpose, whatever that is, because God is still in control. The next thing that this passage says is that in the midst of struggles, that God is on our side. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is on our side. If God is for us, can be against us. In verse 37, chapter 8, In all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? I would like to say because God is on our team, but in reality we are on God's team. He has chosen us. But he's still on our side. Thirdly, in this set of scriptures, it says that God is not only on our side, but God is at our side. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is walking by our side. That very same God that we want to blame for our struggles is the very God that will walk with us through those struggles. And sometimes we don't understand that pro process. Oftentimes we don't understand that process, but yet God understands that we don't understand that. He said earlier that the Holy Spirit prays for us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through worldless groans. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Charlie and I were sitting together over at the flyby uh, cafe uh, after the men's Bible study one morning. We just got to talking about some of the things that we were reading by C.S. Lewis. And we got to talking about prayer. You don't realize that when we pray, even when we don't know what to pray because we're hurting so much or suffering so much, 
that the Spirit intercedes for us. But the whole entire Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in our prayer lives. You see, when we pray, and we don't even know what it is that we need to be praying about, when our mind is so clouded, the Holy Spirit knows us so well that he intercedes for us. But get this. Those prayers are going up to Jesus Christ, who after he was resurrected, went to sit at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is interceding for us with the Father because he knows our hearts and has been here and experienced everything that we've ever experienced. So that when we pray, the Holy Spirit knows our hearts and knows what needs to be prayed, sends it up to Jesus who's sitting at the right hand of the Father and understands how we're hurting. And the Father hears and comes to be present with us and walks with us. What a powerful picture of how prayer works. That we have somebody praying for us and we don't even know how to pray. We have somebody else interceding for us, telling the Father directly, exactly what's going on in our lives. Verse 18, excuse me, 17 and 18, the ultimate victory will come. If we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. The ultimate victory is sharing in his glory. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Much of our Christian faith is about the fact that we will live eternally with the Heavenly Father. Jesus said, I will go and prepare a place for you that where I am you shall be also. He died on the cross for our sins. And sometimes we need to borrow from that eternity the reality of that eternity of living forever with God in paradise into what's going on here so that we can understand what God is doing in the present and how he loves us. I call it zooming out. Not long ago I was on the computer I had Pulled up an address on Google Maps. Found what I was looking for. I zoomed in. I wanted to get a street view. I went to the satellite view and got a street view. And then I hey, this is cool. I'm going to go look at my house in Tucson. Yeah. Found it. Hey, I need to go tell my renters that they need to take care of the trees. No, I, but I was excited when I found my house because I zoomed in. And I started zooming in on other things. And as I played with Google Maps, I zoomed out. I said, how far will this take me? I zoomed all the way out. I saw planet Earth. I realized I could rotate it. I said, wow, what a perspective of the Earth. I can go from out here and look at anything that's going on, or not anything that's going on, but anything that is an image on the planet of Earth and zoom in. But when I zoomed out, I realized that I was getting a larger perspective of the Earth. Perspective seen from God's eyes. 
a perspective that might be seen from eternity. And I realized that's how we, what we need to do with what's going on in our lives. Sometimes we need to just zoom out for a little while and see what's going on from the larger perspective of what God is doing. Think of how God has provided for us. Think of how he has proved himself faithful to us over again and again and again and again. Put our current moment in the context of all that God is doing in our lives and from the perspective of eternity. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Last page. That's where we stop. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul zoomed out. The glory that will be revealed are not at all compared to our present sufferings. We struggle. But if we want to be spiritually resilient, we need to claim the things that God has done. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Which brings us to the table this morning. Communion. What we celebrate in communion is remembering what Jesus died for us. Because on the night that he died, he sat down with his, night before he was crucified, he sat down with his disciples and shared a time, a meal with them. But before morning, he was arrested, beaten, taken to his crucifixion, and died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he was resurrected, solidifying that he was indeed the one in control and power to take care of what's going on inside of us and to secure eternity for us. Forty-some days later, after maybe 50 on the day of Pentecost, he ascended to the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We recognize Jesus when we take communion. I'm going to invite the, those that are serving to come forward at this time as we prepare our hearts for remembering all that Jesus Christ has done. For he is the one present with us each and every moment when we struggle through life. I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. I challenge you to take a few moments, examine your own heart, We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a long, drawn-out process. It's immediate. So take a moment. Clear your thoughts. Clear your hearts. Confess what needs to be confessed to God. Feel that forgiveness and that cleansing. And then we'll share the cup and the bread together.
We have a prayer for the bread, please. Lord, Father God, we, we come to you humble that, that, uh, that the bread was broken, your body was broken for us on our behalf. Um, we are humbled by all the things you have done for us um, in spite of what we have done. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that your love is for us. And uh, we lift you up in praise. In these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And when he had given thanks, he took the bread broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. We have a prayer for the cup. Yes. 